interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Welcome everybody to my bloody podcast where we're talking about all things horror, movie, and entertainment related. I'm Brian Kluger and I'm joined by the host with the most, the man who I want to go to the wilderness with and just go camping. Nothing bad can happen. Dan Moran, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. I'm real excited to talk about this one today and we got a special guest. We sure do. Our special guest, we're going to be talking about the brand new reboot remake of Wrong Turn 2021 with the filmmaker, the intercontinental champion of horror, film, music, VHS, and rye (laughs) whiskey, Mike Nelson. What's up, man? Welcome to the show. That, uh... That was sure an introduction. Holy buckets. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a lot of WWE talk going around here. A lot of pro wrestling stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, Mike, uh, let we have to start at the very beginning here. Where did it all start for you in film? Was it was it something you watched and, uh, on an old TV set with your parents? Or uh, you got your first video camera? Where did it all begin for you in film? I mean, yeah, I, I think it was. I think it was my, I remember from at a very young age, we were at our old house and I was only at our old house until I was four. Um, and I remember sitting downstairs or laying downstairs on the couch and watching movies with my dad on our, what was it? 20 inch, you know, CRT um, Zenith. <laughs> uh and uh you know it was whatever it was on tv it was whatever movies they had recorded um off the uh the sunday night movie you know with the do 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 you know like like fantastic stuff and so i remember sitting you know watching you know like movies like cocoon with my dad and uh all the indiana Jones. well i guess not all of them at the time it was raiders and temple of doom uh, Temple of Doom was one that he regretted showing me afterwards because he gave it <laughs> uh, but actually played very heavily into uh, 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 inspiring me for for this one. Um, you know, uh, Star Wars movies. I mean, uh, one of my favorite movies of all, actually my favorite movie of all time is American Graffiti. And uh, I watched that with my dad countless times. And, you know, it was because of the cars and the culture and we would He'd always take me to car shows. We always go to car shows as a family. We always had a hot rod uh, in the driveway that my dad was working on, whether it be like a Buick Grand Sport or, or a 64 Chevy or, um, it, it, you know. So, yes, uh, watching movies with my dad, watching him uh, film, you know, moments at Christmas with this ginormous shoulder-mounted, you know, video camera with the eyepiece hanging on to the the the. the the VHS, you know, compartment uh, that had the tape rolling in there with the ginormous battery that once that died, you had to drop like some ungodly amount to buy another one. Um, and, uh, you know, then, you know, getting to the age of, you know, I don't know, six or seven and 
taking that camera and wanting to shoot my own stuff and shooting little movies with Lego guys and doing stop motions and getting together with friends and making little violent stories in our living room, you know, pretending that we were in an office and a werewolf came in and murdered everybody. Um, you know, just like, I was always so interested in, in, in fascinated with, uh, with, you know, monster movies and creature movies. And, you know, my dad wouldn't let uh, me watch um, uh, anything R-rated. Uh, well, with the exception of Das Boot, weirdly enough, like for some reason I was able to watch that when I was like four years old and I'll never forget it. Um, but I mean, I, I think it was after Temple of Doom and that, that he realized, oh man, I gotta be more careful. And so from then on, up until, I, I mean, other than sneaking some R-rated movies here and there, I think it was like, you know, we're gonna watch the Universal Monsters, uh, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, King Kong, Godzilla, we're gonna like, you know, um, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, we're, we're gonna watch the good ones, the classics, and I'm thinking, cool, okay, like, get to watch movies, it's cool. Um, so yeah, uh, then I was just making those movies and making movies with friends, and, and eventually it just, it came to this thing where I just kept doing it, and I kept telling these stories and writing stories, and um, it got to the point where I remember in, in high school, you know, what do you want to do after high school? I kind of want to, maybe I want to go to film school. And there was a film, there was a film school here in, uh, in um, Minnesota. Um, I'm, I live in Robbinsdale. The, the film school is in Minneapolis, the Minneapolis uh, College of Art and Design. And it, funny enough, my dad actually went there back in the 60s for illustration and graphic wow. design. And so that was sort of like a, a, a cool connection and I thought that there, you know, there was, it was back in the, back in 2001, when I went there, everything was still very old school. They still had moviolas. They still had a ton of film cameras. Um, it smelled like celluloid, you know, in the building, like everything, everything reminded me of like when my dad, going, my dad uh, at, a, at a point in his time uh, in his life worked at a, um, a photography studio called Film Photography in Minnetonka. And I remember visiting him all the time with my mom and walking into that space and you could smell the darkroom chemicals and you saw all these people doing things that looked so important and I was like gosh this looks great like it just it, there was something electric about you know all these sets and and sights and sweeps and you know everything was like fake but like it looked real in the frame and I was like man this is super cool um and so yeah you know it was it, it, and so that reminded me of that did a four-year program, did a BFA there, uh, made some movies, learned, you know, as much as you can learn uh, in a four-year um, in film, and then, you know, really got the education after that. You know, it was really just, you leave school, and then there's, that's when, that's the turning point, really, I think, with a lot of um, people who, um, who go to film school is continuing to make stuff, because when you're in film school, it's like, you have this, like, nurture, this nurturing, you know, uh, you have teachers to kind of like help you along to kind of give you a kick in the pants and you have all the gear, you know, at your disposal, but then it's afterwards where things get tough. Like, right. That I, I, I'm, I'm there with you. Cause that's what I did. I went to film school at Kansas and, <laughs> and, you know, afterwards, you know, you work your way like PA uh, style, then you just try to get jobs and you're doing that. So you, correct me if I'm wrong did you start out doing the coolest job ever fully artist yeah so I mean 
I, I graduated from school and immediately had no job. So my job that I was at in high school hired me back, which was a cashier at a grocery store. <laughs> and so I did that and um, started then, but then, you know, to get, to get into like shooting stuff and, and to ki- kind of work in the field, it was shooting weddings. And, you know, it is what it is, but, you know, it brought some extra money in and, and, you know, it was fun. You got to, I got to shoot with a camera. I got the, I got all this creative freedom basically to kind of shoot and kind of do whatever I wanted. And people reacted positively to all that. And I kept getting more jobs until finally I started, I started shooting Pakistani weddings and I kind of became like in our area, I kind of became like the guy who shoots Pakistani weddings. And it was a lot of fun. And it was like such a, I met so many wonderful people and I still keep in contact with a bunch of them. And uh, it was a really cool period of time. And um, in that moment, um, I uh, then was making a film called Summer School with um, a bunch of uh, friends of mine from school. It was an anthology horror film about this kid who has a bunch of dreams while in summer school because he falls asleep because he's so bored. And um, they're all horror uh, subgenres. Um, and I was really into sound uh, in college. Um, so all my films that I did were very sound heavy. And when we did this feature, we didn't really have a lot of money. And so we, we weren't going to bring it to somebody to, to, to have it designed. And I was, I was like, oh, I'll do it. And so I did. I sat down and designed the whole feature. And, uh, but we didn't really have a, a musician. So we brought it to this guy, Tom Hamilton at Undertone Music, uh, downtown Minneapolis, who's a great composer, a great mixer and sound designer. Uh, he's one of the few Dolby stages, Dolby stages here in, in the state. And, and he, uh, he saw the film and was like, I like this. He goes, I'll do the music. You know, he gave us a, a pretty decent rate. And, and then I was looking for work again. I was like, man, I want to get into this stuff and I want to do something. And I got a call from him one day. He goes, Mike, I'm looking for an extra hand at the studio. Uh, I really liked your work on summer school. Um, and I was like, okay. He goes, how'd you like to come in and, um, you know, start, start cutting some sound for me. Uh, I have some projects. And I was like, okay. He goes, do you know Pro Tools? I, uh, sort of. I learned it a little bit in school. You know what? You'll learn it. Just come on in. I like your style. Let's go. <clears throat> and so I worked there for like almost three years uh, and, you know, worked from doing dialogue editing, which I wasn't great at. And I think Tom saw that. He was like, because dialogue editing isn't super creative. It's problem solving, but it's not very creative. Um, and then he put me in, in into doing music editing, which I loved. Okay. And then I'm a drummer. And so everything has a beat. And so I'm like, with the music, I was just like, boom, boom, boom. And so that really, I really took off of that. And then we started, he started to do more Foley for his stuff. And he wanted me to take on that. And so I kind of became the in-house uh, uh, Foley uh, editor and, and, and Foley artist. Damn, was that fun, man. The shit we got to break and the, the stuff we got to do, it was at times super awkward and at times ridiculously fun. Um, the, we got to go out in, into the field and record strange things, go to car museums and, 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 and record all these cars. And I walked in high heels just about every other day. Uh, <laughs> it was, I mean, I mean, I mean, every cliche you can think about with like a fully, fully, you know, artist, it, it, that's, that's what it was. Um, got to work on um, Patrick Reed Johnson's 52577, which was one of the most fun things to work on. Uh, so did the fully, fully art for that. And this movie called the Immaculate Conception of Lizzle, Little Dizzle, which 
if you haven't seen it, it's such a weird little sleeper hit. It is one of the coolest, strangest little dark comedies you'll ever see. What's it called? The Immaculate Conception of Little Dizzle. It's, it was by a filmmaker named uh, David Russo, I believe his name was. Um, but damn. It's uh, good. Very, very odd. Very I odd. Added, I just added it to my list. Yeah, will... very, very cool. And of course, if you get a chance to see 525, uh, it's, it's such a great love song to, to Star Wars and, and to just being a, a young filmmaker. In any case, that, I, I don't want to, I, I feel like I'm just talking, 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 but like. No, I, mean, I, I like this. So when you said it was like the strangest, the weirdest sounds, do you remember like a certain thing that you got for a sound that was strange? Because I feel like being a Foley artist, you would be on a Tom Waits album at some point that the dude just has <laughs> strange sounds. But Yes, uh, totally. Um, well, let's see. I remember doing a couple, um, you know, I remember like sticking my head in the fridge and banging my head on the, on the, on the racks in the fridge, because, you know, when you're in a fridge, it has its own sound and then you have the metal and, you know, it, it was always about like, if you could actually do what they're doing in the movie and that's what it sounds like, well, fuck, then let's do that. Um, but then, you know, you did other things like uh, there was a moment in 525 where a dog runs out of a hallway and like scampers around the corner really fast <laughs> to figure out like, what, what is that? What is that? You know, it's like, it wasn't recorded very well in the day and you couldn't really hear the, the sound of the, of a dog running. And so we taped um, uh, paper clips to all my fingers and got a piece of floor paneling and just, you know, and, 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 like, and like, I just tried to like, you know, scamper and slide it across. And that was a fun one. Clothing Foley is always so interesting because you're kind of like sensually like rubbing your arm as like the characters like reaching into a glove compartment. And so you have to like, and you're like not breathing and you're just like rubbing your clothes. And then, you know, if like there's a little twitch in it, you know, and then of course, you know, Tom's sitting there mixing, mixing it in and trying to figure out like those levels. And I don't know, like, so, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there, there's so much, so much crazy stuff. You know, like the little Dizzle one had so many weird goofy sounds in there, like spitting up a, a fish into a bucket and like, what 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 did what what was it? What would that sound like? We smashed probably a hundred bottles in our sound room, and we're still we were still finding glass in there like months after we did that. It, anyway, no, I, I'm glad you because I think the Foley um, artist is such a fun job because you get to, it's super creative. But then this leads to you being behind the camera and full on helming a movie of every aspect, uh, which you know kind of leads us into wrong turn which oh my this this new wrong turn that you've made there previously i think the first one was 2003 and there's been six wrong turn films this is the seventh one but it's a reboot completely different uh so please tell me how this came about because i mean this is like a big franchise this is up there with nightmare on elm street and jason and friday 13th and whatnot so please. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, just doing a, a slight jump back, you know, going from the Foley and then being hired as an uh, in-house director, doing commercial stuff at, at a place called Make Here, and then just making shorts. Um, it was honestly just continually making, like, to, honestly, to get to wrong turn, it was, I had to keep making my own stuff and stuff that I liked, stuff that I wasn't making to get into the position that I am now making stuff because 
I just thought it was cool. That's awesome. Um, you know, made a short called The Retirement of Joe Corduroy, uh, which was sort of this throwback to like Death Wish meets Race with the Devil kind of thing. And, and, and to me, that was like, it was a dream project that I was able to do. And I, was, I wrote a grant. So I was able to get money to make it. And, and, uh, and so made this film, which then, you know, festivals didn't really care for. And actually, a lot of times festivals didn't really care for any of my shit. And so I kind of got to this point where I was like, maybe I should just post my stuff online and just, you know, the world can see it and I'll just keep making stuff. And so that's what I did. So I posted it online. Uh, uh, and then I think, you know, some guy, I think his name was like Freddie Avalos. So this, this guy that was on Vimeo saw it, gave it to Todd Brown, uh, who was uh, on, at Twitch Film originally, um, which is no longer, but he's also XYZ Films. He saw it and was like, Mike, I'm Todd Brown, love your film. Can we post stuff about your film on the site? Absolutely. So that kept going on there. Suddenly I started getting a couple calls from producers. Oh, this is interesting. I've never had this happen before. Talked to them a little bit. Then an agent called me. Mike, saw your film. Looks really cool. Do you want to keep in touch? You know, maybe something happens down the line. Okay. This guy, Daniel Cohen at WME. I'm thinking, I'm this guy from Minnesota, just this guy who just likes to make these, these, grimy little you know movies with violence and i'm like okay i'm into this this is cool okay something could happen it just kept going kept going uh and then you know things just kind of leveled up we had another short idea called the domestics wanted to make this web series make all these little shorts that kind of make this one cohesive story make that that starts to get a little bit of attention hollywood gang sees it Oh my gosh, you have a feature script of this? Well, sort of. Let's let's develop it. We develop it. That gets made from MGM. And it just suddenly things just start to fast track. I'm like, what is that? What what just happened here? And uh and then domestics, you know, coming out and you know, it was a small movie and you know, didn't really make a huge splash in the world, but you know, more people are seeing it now and and it, it's been cool to kind of watch that garden grow. Um uh, uh, Robert Colzer at Constantine, of course, had was familiar with the movie, saw the movie. I had been able to pitch after getting Domestics. It kind of opens the doors for for you to be able to pitch and, and go around town and, and pitch to people. And I, I then hired my agent, the same guy who saw Joe Corduroy and said, hey, Mike, maybe someday we can do something. I connected with him again. We started working together and I uh, started going around town pitching things. I was able to pitch to Robert Colzer at Constantine a couple projects. One was this slasher movie I had written that kind of flips everything on its head and and then um, called Parental. And then there was uh, this other shark movie that uh, John Scott III, who had written uh, Maggie, uh, the, the zombie film with Schwarzenegger, um, uh, was writing and I really liked it. And so we went out and pitched that. And of course, you know, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. and those were two that just didn't, they didn't, they didn't strike a chord in people or they might be too expensive or whatever. Or maybe, you know, Mike isn't, isn't seasoned enough a filmmaker to take on one of these yet. And, um, but what was really cool was there were people who remembered me in the room and Robert was one of those people. Cut to 2017. Oh my God. Am I ever going to make another movie again? Damn it. Maybe, maybe one was, was all I could do. You know, you start to think these really terrible thoughts because you know, you think, yes, I, I made a movie and now people are going to hire me. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, you got to hustle. You got to hustle, hustle, hustle. And you got to hustle, especially when the hustling's hot. 
um, um, when, when, when you're out there, when you're, when you're in the, in the light. And so, um, uh, my manager, Noah Rosen at writ large, um, uh, sent me a script and he goes, Mike, we got to get you next project. And I have something that you might like it's wrong turn. And I'm just like, <laughs> and like, I immediately, I'm just like, Oh my gosh. Okay. And he goes, but you might want to give this one a shot. It's the original writer, the, the writer who wrote the first one, mm-hmm. Alan, who actually Noah uh, reps as well. And I was like, okay, okay. All right. I'll give it a shot. Fair enough. You know, it's like, I love, I love survival movies. I love, you know, I love movies in the woods. I deliverance. One of my favorites. Um, I'll give it a shot. Sure. I'll read it. Uh, like the first wrong turn. So, okay. Reading this movie and holy crap like you think you're in it and and i i feel like i had like the same experience that people who are watching it now for the first time are having uh while i'm reading it i'm like what just happened because like the first 30 40 pages of this movie feel pretty wrong turning like i'm like oh yeah oh dude and like domestics i was on to like animal heads on people and like skull masks and all this and sure enough there's all these skull masks and there's these elk heads and i'm just like (laughs) oh so i'm getting really excited and then suddenly it just goes I'm like, what is happening now? This is, this is not a typical wrong turn movie. And I didn't know what to think of it at first. Honestly, I think I was a little bit like, uh, what is going on here? And, you know, I liked the wrong turn movie, but it wasn't like my like bread and butter horror that I always went to. It was, you know, but, but I was, it was also like, man, there's no cannibals in this one. What are people going to think? uh what about this weird middle switch off that turns into something crazy is that gonna work but then you're thinking to yourself but man this could be really different this could be really unique this movie has a really cool message let's see what we can do with this So, you know, and then the rest is, you know, honestly, like, well, this is what connects it back to Robert Kozer is like, honestly, you, you, uh, you, I read the script. I like, I I came back to to Noah. Yes. I like this. What's the next step? I think this could be really fun. We could have some, you know, there's some tweaks and stuff we wanted to do, but it was great. You'll love Alan. I want to get you in touch with Alan. I think you should be talking to Robert and sure enough, they tell Robert, Robert, there's this guy, Mike Nelson. He wants to, he's interested in wrong turn, wants to pitch you. He's like, wait a second, Mike Nelson is that the guy who pitched me that really psychotic slasher and that weird shark movie that was just falls to the wall <laughs> thing? And they're like, yeah, that's him. And he goes, bring him in. I want to hear his take. <laughs> and so sure enough, went out there, um, took a meeting with him and uh, did a light pitch, just kind of some of my ideas, what I really enjoyed about it, just, you know, to see if like our, 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 our instincts kind of clicked. They did. He's like, okay. So, you know, we're talking to some other people, Mike, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, why don't you go back, do a pitch, you know, come up with a pitch and, and, and we'll have him, we'll, we'll call you and, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Okay. A couple months go by, formulate some ideas, do a pitch uh, over the phone, pitch him the movie. This is what I want to do. Hour and 40 minute call or whatever. And uh, there's a silence. Okay, Mike, I, uh, I, I think we should do it. I think we should go. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I just went, you know, now granted, you know, 
getting the 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 sign off on, on the executive saying yes we'll do this movie doesn't guarantee the movie but it's a huge first step and from okay. then on it was us just trying to get the thing made and so you spoke about this but how important was was it to you when you when you get a horror movie like wrong turn and it also obviously has fans it's a series as you said it's cannibals there's six of them already and you get this script that what was shocking to me and honestly what brian and i talk about it has twists it has turns it subverts audience expectations and you spoke a little bit how you were nervous about that but do you when you're going into filming or working with alan and pitching it do you put yourself in the perspective of what would a typical horror fan expect from a wrong turn and how visually and these actors can i flip it on its head a little bit, but still just make them fall in love and go along for the ride. Because I got to be honest, when I was watching it, so many things I did not expect happened in this movie that I truly was like, oh, this is great. This is so fun. Um, And how do you go about working that through with the executives and the writer to make sure you're all on the same page for that? Um, Well, what was really, really cool about this opportunity, this story was, first of all, that was one of the key elements that made me fall in love with it was the fact that, you know, it made me nervous for sure, because what are people going to think, but you can't let that be the determining factor all the time. You can think about that and you can wonder how can we, how can we make this work within our audience? You know, that's going to be expecting something. But I think when given this opportunity and especially with a writer like Alan and, 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 and somebody like Robert who, saw you know alan seeing this opportunity to completely give his story a completely new life robert as an executive who i feel like you know normally you think an executive well we got to make sure we, let's let's play it a little bit safer here we know we got to give him this we got to give him this everybody was just like nope this is what we're doing we are prepared to we are prepared for the idea that not everybody's going to to like this and that's okay um, we want to subvert the expectation. We want to kind of blow people's minds and um, do something very different and unique. And they literally, everything they were saying was, they were speaking my language. I'm just like, as a filmmaker, you're just like, I want in. I need to be a part of this. Like, I like the script, like, but being a part of a script where everybody's on that same page, it's a dream come true. You know, it's like, you're, you're, you're not going to be fighting. And there was very little fighting about, uh, you know, or differences of opinion about what should be in the movie. It was, it was small things. It was small details. The big subvert subversion in, in, in the middle of the movie, the, 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 the switch up, that was always, this is what the movie needs to be. And that is what was so exciting. And that's, you know, where I was like, this is, this is a ride. This is a journey I need to take. This is a story I want to tell. Um, and, you know, I honestly felt like, you know, the, 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 this, the visceral nature that Alan, you know, put into the script, I felt like would satisfy, you know, horror moviegoers, um, you know, horror fans. And, you know, I feel like, you know, yes, it's not going, it's going to make some people maybe a little upset that their, their favorites aren't in there, but I do feel like there's, people are going to like this. Yeah, I, I don't think you're. I don't think anything that happened in this movie is going to upset any typical horror fans. There's plenty of horror in this movie that you would expect from a wrong turn film, and and so I think one of the things, another thing, Brian and I talked about is um, between this and the domestics, 
you are a animal head or mask enthusiast to say the least. <laughs> um, and I know that you said earlier that it was on the page, but you got to be honest with us. How many um, set to the side or we didn't use these designs of the menacing villains of these uh, backwoods people? I don't want to give away any spoilers, but th- some of those menacing costumes. How many did you go through? How did you guys decide on the ones that would look best? Because the poster that's going around is absolutely terrifying. And it was just a perfect choice. And I know there must be some on the cutting room floor that you guys designed. So talk through that process a little bit, because that's just great. To be 100% honest, not a lot on the cutting room floor. Really? Uh, we didn't have the time or the budget to make to, to, to put a lot on the cutting room floor. We had to sit, I, so what was really cool was I got to sit down with, um, for the masks. So uh, Gina Ruiz, who did amazing stuff with the costumes and, and her team with Robin Fields and so forth. Um, they did uh, some amazing work on the costumes. The masks were the brainchild of um, myself and uh, Ryan Shadley, who um, is actually an effects guy here in Minnesota. Uh, he worked on films like uh, I'm Not a Serial Killer. Um, and uh, I know he does a lot of stuff with um, Full Moon. Um, but uh, he's a guy that I worked with uh, on some of my films. Um, he did the, the, in my short film, he did the, the, there's a part where a guy gets his hand blown off and the pinky and the thumb are left. And so he built this hand that like spurts blood and the pinky and the thumb are moving. And and I had a really great experience working with him um, on that and, and other things. And so I really wanted to bring him onto this. And he's a master modeler, master, you know, mold maker. And, um, you know, I was just like, yes, it's like, you know, I want to make these skulls. I want to make them big. I want to make them ferocious. Um, you know, there's going to be some that are going to be made of other parts, you know, almost like this kind of patchwork, almost leather facey, but like with bone um kind of vibe and he was like okay okay um well i'm just gonna i'm gonna pour some molds and you know we can only get a certain amount of stuff um i think you know overall i think we got like i think we had like hundreds of different antlers um that we that we bought we went to a place called like antlers.com or something it was ridiculous (laughs) um but uh but for the masks you know it was just sitting down and putting it was like putting pieces together and seeing what worked and you know I think there was a couple variations of horns that went on Venable's mask that we went through but we ended up going with the ones that that you saw um but it was like you know how do you make these masks work especially ones where the 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 skulls are maybe smaller than human heads um and that's where you got the idea of like triple deer skull that you know Damien Maffei wore uh which I'd, I'd seen a deer skull mask before but never one that was like triple um elk skull which was sort of the pinnacle character that you know gets gets the there's like that turning point in the movie where when 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 adam does what he does that was the one that i wanted to be like a very it's the elk skull is such a graphic um you immediately like you can't help but look at it uh um in just in just design and um and so that was a very important um mass to play very very straightforward but um it had to be big and i remember i remember people like ryan uh, ryan talking to me like so these elk horns they're huge and i was like yeah i know and he goes are you sure you don't i mean i could put deer horns on them just so like i'm like dude it's gotta be it's gotta be just the rack and he's like okay let's do it i mean the same thing with with uh with moose skull 
that's a fucking moose skull <laughs> you know, that, that they that they uh, that Ryan you know molded and, and poured, and those are those freaking horns. I mean, that's how big it is. It's a giant ass thing, and I just you know I love those big ass masks that that you know we were able to create. And then of course wolf skull, taking pieces of a wolf skull and cutting them and stitching them together with uh, with with twine and um and like um and and sinew. You know what I mean to like put it all together and to have the jaw. And I think uh, it doesn't really come across on screen all that much, but uh, Mark Mensch, uh, it was able to work where if he moved his jaw, the mouth would open. Um, <laughs> it didn't really play on screen all that much because they didn't really talk in their masks all that much, right. um, but it was, it, we were able to do it. Um, boar skull, you know, it was taking a boar skull, cutting it apart and finding the pieces and the bone structure didn't actually work with how it would fit on the face. So I think we had to flip some bones upside down and it was just a lot of uh, trial and error. And we had to make what we had, you know, for our budget work. And that's what we came up with. And, you know, again, I think that speaks to a lot of like, sometimes when you have less, you can, you know, it's that it's a having that less that like makes you really find those the, the creative juices that that, that make it work and, and define something unique and you because you could feel that in the movie because um a, a lot of those scenes with those masks take place in in light in daylight in other forms of light and so it wasn't shadows or a skull around a corner or it's really dark and you could get away with like i'm looking at these masks and i'm just thinking to myself that is some scary shit. Like that is just terrifying to look at in broad daylight stared at me and I'm scared of it. So I, I, I had to know how you guys went through that. Cause it, it that's just amazing to me that, and to, to say, you said, you know, through the budget and whatnot that you guys got it that correct on so few tries, if you will, is just, uh, I mean, hats off to creating some menacing looking villain costumes. They were very scary. Well, and like I said, like it was, it was really with, you know, Ryan, Ryan's help and, and Gina and figuring out how we could make these masks, you know, work with the costumes and make them work with the actor. Um, I mean, they were so, you know, critical in, in, in making that, um, making that happen. So let's, uh, let's talk about the score and the sound of the movie. Cause I love the score. Cause I'm so I, glad you asked. No, of course. So, I mean, one of my other shows, uh, we just interview composers um, from film scores. So we're huge. Tell me you're going to get Steven Lukacs on this bad boy. If if I can, I I asked for anybody who would be willing from this movie. So okay. if I can, so Steven, so Steven, Steven, Steven's Steven's a little bit more reserved. He's he's not going to be the guy who's going to like come out and be like, oh yeah, sure, I'll let me talk to him. Let me see if I can get him to do this because I told him he's been getting like mentions in a lot of our write-ups and reviews because the score stands out like the score is its own like yeah its own beast yeah if if you and him want to come on together that would be great at a future time but yeah i guess just you know if we'll do this you know a full episode on the score but like talk a little bit about you know since you've coming from the foley artist uh and probably helping with some of the sound that these gruesome great sounds in the movie. Cause that's what I, I love a, a good horror movie that really enhances uh, the intricate noises of, you know, the carnage um, and not just a carnage, the subtle spots, um, but also with the score involved. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, so just talking about the, the, the sound really quick, the sound design, like, um, was really fortunate to be able to work with um, 
uh, the uh, the guys at, uh, at at Formosa, um, Trevor Gates and and, and Jason Dots, um, who are the guys who did Haunting of Hill House, and um, I actually got to meet them before they did that. Uh, they did the Sound of Domestics, um, and so they um, were guys that you know I had a really great experience with and wanted to continue working with them. And for this movie, which we didn't have much of a budget for, and then I'm like, so I want to work with you guys again. Oh yeah, by the way, we have even less money for this movie. <laughs> and they're like, oh, and I remember that they're being like this. Well, we, you know, people saying, I don't know if it's going to work. And what was really cool was um, Trevor and Jason fought to make it work um, because, I mean, come on, these are the guys doing this shit for Jordan Peele now. Like they they did us. They get out. You know, they're, they're, they're his guy, you know, and they, they, it wasn't that way. You know, I was doing domestics and I think they had just finished up get out and they had no idea it was going to be as a success as it was. And now these guys are fucking huge yeah. sound designers. And uh, this is me with my second little movie here. And they were like, Mike, we're going to make it work. And I was like, Oh my God. Thank you. And so, yeah, we didn't have as many days, but we had to work twice as hard. And that's where you know Jason came in as such a great you know designer designing it on his own time designing this you know and mixing this movie Trevor coming in with you know his his you know great sound design and 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 his and his cutting skills and and oh my god like and then of course with my background I have very specific ideas about like what I want and you know what I learned working at at the sound uh, at the post sound studio so uh we all love getting into that room that that dark room and just making crazy sounds and 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 beating the shit out of things like it's great it was gross (laughs) (laughs) i mean i mean the horror the horror and some of the gore in this movie is you know what you you can look at it but i noticed and i immediately texted brian when it ended and i said brian some of the sounds you hear when you're when something happens in this movie they are gross like i've seen so many horror movies and i'm just watching like oh that's a machete through the head. Anyway, moving on. And in this movie, I was like, oh, making me a little like queasy. And well, and I think so, some of that too is, is, and I think, you know, when you're in the room, there's a lot of times where you, you might think the right idea is to put the typical sound in. And we wanted to play around with that. And I think when you don't hear the sound that you normally hear, for the head smash or the blade chunk or the whatever and it's something a little bit off um first of all it has to work but if it works there's even something more uncomfortable and and icky about it because it feels there's something more ground strangely grounded about it even if it's not that actual sound there's something that makes it feel more real and so that's you know something that we were we were trying to play with awesome um the music though um so Steven was a guy, um, Nate, uh, Nathan Barr scored the domestics and I met Steven by working with Nathan Barr. Uh, Steven was, was sort of, um, uh, was like Nathan's assistant. And so he uh, would work on the score with us and uh, Steven actually um, designed a couple of the tracks for domestics. And they were tracks that I really, really enjoyed. Um, I came to Nate actually to score this one, but he was in the midst of scoring like the Hollywood, the, the, the Hollywood show on Netflix. And he had two other movies that he was in one for Amazon. He was jam packed for like the rest of the year. And I was like, damn it. And he goes, Hey, 
you do know that Stephen was a huge, you know, proponent of, you know, the domestic score and why it sounded that way. And I was like, you're right. Okay. He goes, he's looking for, for, for a film to, to score. I was like, okay. So I talked to him and it was fun to get, get back in, in touch with him. And dang, man, like some of the most memorable moments uh, in, in, in the post process was being able to sit in his little studio room and just chug sounds and hit things and play on, like get these weird, strange sounds on his Moog keyboard and blend all this together. We had a violinist come in who did like the, the, the string up bends uh, when they go into the foundation, the which was sort of my like, you know, I, I love my like sounds um mainly and 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 mainly i love that because i um of uh it to me it's it's the it's the t1000 theme and and for what for what it's worth like if i'm walking around doing something and i'm very focused like i do this on movies i do this when i'm folding the laundry and if i'm like super focused going one thing to another in my head i'm doing the <laughs> like for some reason i don't know why but, but it's something like what robert patrick did in the movie and that 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 music and so i was always like man i want to like i want to like i love that sound i want to like make my own version of that and so you hear that a lot in domestics you hear that in here but then when you go to the foundation i wanted to then do the opposite of that and then you know when when edith walks through those 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 vines and it goes instead of going and I said I was like Stephen I want the hairs on your arm to kind of stand up like I want that kind of kind of feeling I want it to be the complete opposite of what we've been doing in the movie up until this point and he brought in this violinist who's just really like surgical with like doing those kinds of bends I mean just a blast like working with a guy and what was so cool about working with Stephen is he's so open to trying batshit crazy ideas and I think that's where we got you know we got such a, a unique score out of this you know we there's a point in the movie where um you know I gave I gave him like uh things like so one of my favorite horror movie scores is um is uh, The Entity Charles Bernstein and uh, you know that that piano hit um the uh, strange you know, and like the door is like opening by itself and just the sounds that like give you like the chills, you know, and, you know, there was like little, small little things like that, that like I wanted to incorporate in this movie. And so Stephen, he fucking knows Charles Bernstein. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, little do I know he knows him. And, and so he goes out to his house and asks him how he made some of these sounds. And he, I remember him saying, I don't remember how I did it. He goes, well, this director I'm working with kind of wants to do something similar. He's like, awesome go for it. Like you can figure it out. And uh, sure enough, we, we, you know, if you listen in the movie, there's a couple of moments where they, and then when Bill Sage is talking in, in that one scene where he's like, you know, we have no poverty, no war. Uh, you hear the, you know, that, that, um, that hit. And, and, oh my gosh, I mean, so fun to play with like all these little references that, you know, we were able to pull, pull together. And, you know, I love, you know, I, one of the reasons why I love working with Nathan Barr was I love his, he's he's a cello he's a surgeon with the cello man like he like especially the cello but like cello and bass and steven's also really good with with uh with making these crazy sounds on the bass and so you get that you can get the on that bass and what he's able to like layer all this grit and this grime 
everything, all the sounds that we were, we were doing, it was important to make them feel very organic, very imperfect. Anything that we recorded, the only sound I ever wanted that was perfect was that violin string up. Everything else, like whenever Steven was ready, hold on, I'm gonna record that again because I wanna, I wanna get it, I'm like, no, 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 stop. Just, I love it how, like, how, how kind of icky it sounds. Just keep it icky. Okay. And so, and that's kind of that, that, that was sort of our MO going through, like, as long as it kind of has this off kilter uneasiness kind of feel, we're going to run with it. And that's what we did. Badass. No, that's great. No, it's, it came off well. I was in the moment through all these and the music really enhanced it. And hopefully in a couple of weeks, we'll get you on again with, and we'll have like a good old fashioned time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm literally going to get on, I'm going to get on the horn of them right after this and see if he's in like, perfect, I, perfect. No, I'm really in it. Uh, well, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll talk later after the show. Um, and then, uh, let's, let's talk about, we got to talk about Matthew Modine coming in a little bit. Uh, I love Matthew Modine. He's, uh, he's a great dude. And I just love that he went fully in on this and as yeah. well as the other cast, I really bought into everybody. Uh, and it was just kind of cool to see Modine kind of, cause in some movies we were like, Oh, Modine's in it. He's like in it. He's fully in it. He's not a cameo. Nope. nope. <laughs> and so talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, when Modine said that he would do it, um, it was really cool because you're right. Like, you know, it's not just Modine is in the movie. He's a care. He's a main character in the movie and being able to like carry his character throughout the film um, as, as somebody that you care for and want to follow that are invested in, um, I thought was really, really uh, exciting. Um, yeah, uh, Matt <laughs> was one of those guys that like, he wanted to do it all. Like, you know, he did some of his own stunts. He was up in the woods with us at three in the morning, running away from ground bees, you know, when we disturbed a nest, like he was like, he was roughing it with the entire crew. Like, and, and I thought that was a really neat thing to see, especially from somebody, it's a, some, a veteran, a professional like him, um, that like, the, he, he didn't have that, like the typical persona that you would expect from like an actor who's like, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm gonna go over here and just, he was there with us, man. And it was cool. Um, he also really, he was unafraid. And I think this is probably true of, of most, of most um, you know, real veteran actors who have been doing this for such a long time. He was not afraid to have the discussions if something felt a little bit like, like he could bring something else to it. You know, a lot of times, especially with younger actors, um, not all of them, but some of them will just kind of do it, do what they're told or, you know, just kind of go through it and, and that's it. And one thing that was really nice about Matthew was uh, he didn't step on any toes, but he loved to, so Mike, I feel like in this scene, I want like, so in the bar scene, when, when uh, Rhodes is at the bar drinking the beer and he's like, if your daughter's gone, she's dead. Like, don't even try to follow her, you know? And he comes and he, go, and the, the original intent of that scene was to keep this distance. You know, you have, this guy from the sticks and you have this guy from the city and they're all very different and they're on different sides. And I wanted to keep that, like they're on different sides kind of thing. Matt, this was our first day of shooting with Matthew actually uh, was in that bar. And he's like, Mike, I, I just feel like I would come up to him and I would show him that like, 
I mean business. Like I am a father looking for his daughter. And so that line when, you know, he, you know, do you have kids? What would you do? I feel like I need to say it to him, not over here, but here. And granted, we had all the blocking set up. The dolly track was set up for where we wanted it to be. And I thought about that for a moment. I'm like, damn it, he's right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a really good idea. And, uh, and it ended up being a much more cinematic moment. And I think it gives him a drive and a power. And um, you are along the ride with him. Even though after that moment, we don't see him for another 30 minutes. Like you are like, you are in with him at that point. You see his drive and he is somebody that, that's going to be a part of this movie. So yeah, doing stuff like that, working with him, you know, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. And I, I've got to bring up, uh, without giving anything away really, but what re- was there any research you got to do or deep dive into on uh, kind of older uh, townships or villages or even cults of that matter for this movie? Um, yeah, so... My uh, production designer um, was uh, Rochelle Berliner. She was the production designer on Domestics. Um, we have very similar brains. Like it just, you know, she's she's got these sensibilities where like, uh, it's much like my DP from this movie, uh, Nick Junkersfeld, where we just, we kind of finish each other's sentences. Um, she's very much like that. And she's not afraid to like fight and spend every penny she has and doesn't have to get something like done the right way. Um, her and I sat down and, you know, I had a, last second, I had a, uh, I made this, um, this lookbook here um, out of a, uh, and so there was originally like this, this antler that was glued onto it right here. <laughs> uh, but it's like this super thick book. And what I did was, um, this was like sort of like this, this Bible that, was just full of images that I pulled from online, scans from books, uh, rips from movies. And I was able to give this to, to the, each department to sort of look through. So each department would kind of hang on to it. Like Gina had it, I think, the longest. She didn't want people to have it. She was like, this is mine. Nobody gets it. <laughs> uh, Michelle had it for a long time. You know, I sent her, you know, I, there, I sent her a video of this that I made. And, and so she was able to study that. And then we were able to talk about like things like, okay, what... Um, you know, these people went up on the mountain at around 1859 before the Civil War, right? Well, there would still be some Civil War stuff. Um, there would also be like, you know, there, there would be this, this sense of like, you know, they're mountain men now. You know what I mean? They, they're living on the mountain. They have to use things um, practically, um, but also things stylistically uh, to create this, this, this aura of fear. Um, you know, so not only is it survival, but it's also, you know, a fear-based um, uh, thing that they have to exert um, for pe- to keep outsiders out. So we looked at things like, you know, you know, pre-Civil War, you know, mountain men, you know, sort of looks, uh, Native American, uh, you know, sort of encampments and, 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 and things like that and, and, and tools and, and hunting things. And, and, uh, and then, you know, Norsk uh, stuff, Scandinavian, Viking stuff. Um, and all that kind of merged together into uh, uh into the style for the, for the foundation. Um, because one thing that I felt like was really important was the foundation was sort of 
I always wanted them to be like, they're almost like um, frozen in time. That from when they went up on the mountain, they never changed. What you're seeing them wear now is what they, what they wore uh, back in 1860. Um, they are not our society where we have these decades. You know, we have the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and they're all very different, very unique. They have not changed their style because why? It works. And that's a lot of part of the, their philosophy. Why change what works? Why, why muddle what's right and what's wrong? You know what I mean? Like, you know, why have some people richer and some people poor? Why not make everybody even? Like they've lived by these rules that are just, boom, this is it. This is what it is. That's it. No changing. And they've been doing that for almost 200 years and it's been working. That's, yeah, it's amazing. No, yeah, I, I like that's what the, I don't want to give anything away. I want people to see the movie and watch it and enjoy it. But there's a part of me that just based on this, um, this time speaking with you, I feel like in your head right now, you want to write a book, do a documentary or something on the foundation. Like I can picture you have all these thoughts in your head and I would love to yes. see a, a Christopher Guest mockumentary on the foundation. <laughs> <laughs> that would be insane. <laughs> because <laughs> it, it would almost kind of have to be kind of like the rise of leslie vernon um kind sure of yeah yeah <laughs> yeah no i got you yeah no so i i love i like that um it uh dan do you have any more questions before we get into the fun questions no let's get to the fun ones let's do have the fun questions <laughs> all right all right uh mike uh serious question for you yes um why is charles bronson the coolest thing to ever grace the silver screen oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) um god uh whenever okay so (laughs) all of his movies there's something so um like there's not only is there something grounded about him. Okay, so, okay, I, I'm going to make this comparison. So you have the original Death Wish and you have the new Death Wish. Because so I think this is, a, this is kind of a really good comparison about like the difference between like the action star, which is Charles Bronson and the action star, which is, you know, Bruce Willis or Schwarzenegger or, or somebody from, from that era. Charles Bronson, uh, uh, Charles Bronson to me embodied sort of an every man it wasn't really until death wish that he got that sort of persona of like the badass like killer dude you know what i mean like he was in some stuff beforehand where he was kind of like the 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 guy who didn't talk much that was kind of mysterious and stuff like that and that's fine but death wish really gave him that persona um and i think why that works so well and what made him so cool is he did he literally looked like the everyman and and and, and i think you know growing up knowing that he was the death wish guy you know i think we forget that like before that charles bronson was just he was just a you know a movie star that was in a few movies you know he was in some stuff some some smaller things some bigger some westerns you know that kind of thing but he was never like this you know and i loved the fact that um again he was one of the best care he was one of the best actors that could embody that every man and do the most badass shit and he was so cool when he did it. 
And I mean, it inspired me to do my my short retirement of Joe Corey, which is old guy with a gun, basically. Uh, I just there was just there's just something so captivating about that uh, the mindset behind that, um, the situations that you can put a character like that in and how they handle it. Um, I think there's so much to be discovered and stuff like that. So, yes, Charles Bronson is like one of the coolest coolest things ever yeah it's true very true um also what's the best rye whiskey and what's the best drink to make with rye whiskey <laughs> god you guys did your homework um, <laughs> uh, uh okay so um i really love just the i just love the basic old-fashioned it's one of the one of the best one of my favorite drinks um uh, but um, I do like drinking certain rye whiskeys on their own and putting certain rye whiskeys into an old fashioned. Honestly, one of my favorite old fashioned staples for whiskey is the old Overhold. It is a cheap $17 bottle of whiskey. And uh, it was, uh, I, th- I believe, if I remember reading correctly, um, one of, uh, I think it was Kennedy's favorite. Um, but it is the best base for an old fashioned. It's no bullshit, just rye whiskey. And you just enhance the flavor a little bit, give it a little touch of sweetness, um, you know, using a, you know, use, use a splash of water, a little bit of raw sugar in the bottom, uh, drop a cube in there, a little bit of Angostura. If you got a little couple of fancy bitters, like, you know, like a black strap or something like that, you can put a little couple drops of that in there um drop a king cube gotta be a king cube gotta be a big guy uh, <laughs> uh in there uh pour the whiskey in over that you know mixes everything up a little bit uh take a you know take a cara cara or a, or a straight up navel orange peel uh peel that off ze- uh squirt the oil in there zest it rub the rim drop it in give it one little stir serve man enjoy uh, but uh, now here's now here's the one thing that i add to mine though uh, some people don't like it and some people do. So it, it just depends. But, but I, uh, my, my little secret recipe that I like to add to my own and, and if somebody requests it, it is a pinch of Chinese five spice. I've got that in the spice cabinet. I'm going to try that. <laughs> it, 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 it's just a, a, like a little teeny dusting. It's a super pungent spice, but not all, I mean, to me, drinking an old fashioned with that in it in the fall and, and during Christmas time is like, one of the best things that, that you can you can drink it's it's fantastic <laughs> excellent excellent i like that all right so it should it be netflix and chill or vhs and fuck <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> oh my gosh um so funny enough like I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I sometimes feel like I, I'm living under a rock at times because like, I remember when I heard the term Netflix and chill and I didn't even know what it meant. <laughs> like I was one of those guys who was just kind of like, like I, somebody was like, wait, you don't know what that means. I'm like, what? It just means like, you're just going to watch some Netflix. Right. And everybody just lost their mind. Cause they're just like, you have no idea. <laughs> um, but um, being a, uh, a VHS junkie, um, and as you can see, having the, um, oops. I right, no, I, I noticed that. I was going to see the, what's your most prized VHS uh, piece. Uh, 
I mean, you know, one of the ones, God, let's see here. I have got to say, so I love my, I love my pumpkin head one, <laughs> my original pumpkin head with like, with still like the, um, the rental, some of the rental stickers on it. Yes. That's, that's pretty great. Um, let's see. I, uh, you know, home sweet home is, 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 is a terrible film, but a great VHS. Um, <laughs> Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive. Uh, I mean, look at that art. It's just, you don't get that anymore. Um, I mean, yeah, there's there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's some good ones here. I mean, Hit List with Jan Michael Vincent. I mean, look at that. It's just, it's just beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to have to go with it. Oh, and then and then you, you, you can't, you can't pass out Friday the 13th, but uh, signed by uh, Ari Lehman and um, and uh, Mrs. Voorhees herself. Oh, amazing! Um, oh, wow! But but yeah, I mean, I'm gonna have to go with VHS. Yes. Good, good, good. All right, good. Well, one of our regular hosts, uh, Preston, who does my bloody podcast, he is super into VHS and has a pretty crazy collection as well. So we'll meet at some point. Um, so let's say. Here we go. Another fun question for you. Um, what is your most thrilling movie experience, both as a fan and as a filmmaker? The one that I always go back to is when I saw um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, the 1974 one in the theater. No, I'm not that old, um, but... Uh, I saw it for the, f- the first time I ever saw it was on a really shitty DVD. Uh, it was like a, the compression was terrible. It was way too dark. It was just, it wasn't done very well. But I still liked the movie. I was still kind of blown away by it. I was actually blown away by actually how non-gory it was. And right. yet I still felt like it was very violent, which, you know, for me, like with, wrong, with this wrong turn, like that was a little something that I wanted to kind of bring through again because, you know, this movie like it's pretty bloody it's pretty violent but we're also like you know we're hitchcocking some things because we want to we want to build to a moment of violence and i think you know that's what movies like texas chains i do really well um but there's a theater uh in minneapolis here called the uptown and they much like a lot of theaters have started to do now and had done in the past um they show old movies on the weekends at midnight and they happened to show um, Texas Chainsaw and they had this brand new 35 millimeter print um, that, they, that they made off, off the original negative. And it was restored, and it was whatever. And we got there, we bought the tickets and there was this big sign on the window that said, um, just so you know, the, the, the remastered print, uh, something happened to it and we did not get that version of the movie. And we were all like, what, no. And they said, but we did get an original theatrical print from the seventies that's a little beat up, um, but you know, it still plays. And I was like, oh, that's even better. Yeah. And we went in and a lot of people in the theater, uh, I mean, at least two thirds filled. And it's a big theater room. It's like those old school, big theater rooms. And watching this, grimy ass you see every like you see all these splices the color temperature shifts from being too yellow to too bleached out between reels 
um, the cigarette burns, the, uh, you know, the pop, oh, it's missing a few frames, you know, it jump cuts. Right. I felt like I was experiencing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the true grindhouse fashion. Um, not to mention there were people there who had probably never seen it before because girls were screaming. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And like, you just, you, I just, I, I still get the, like the tingles about it because, you know, you, you don't expect to ever be able to like embody or, or, or feel what that feeling was back when a movie like that first came out. And I felt like I got a little taste of that uh, that night. Um, so that I will, uh, I'll never forget that. Like, I remember walking out of that just being like, I can't believe that just happened. Like, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good deal, good deal. All right. Um, are there any particular scenes, since you're, since you're a purveyor of cinema and you're a fan, uh, are there any particular scenes in movies that have always stuck with you? Like you wake up and say like, shit, I'm thinking about this scene. This inspires me. Um, yes. Uh, I really, really like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And I, I, I like that you bring up uh, Temple of Doom because it's easily the darkest one. <laughs> it is. It's a, it's a cruel movie. Um, you could see there was a lot of uh, anger, um, both I think in uh, in Lucas and Spielberg when they made that movie, because so I think they were both kind of in between relationships at the time. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, you know that was a movie. Um, you know both both Temple of Doom and American Graffiti. I think one of the one of the reasons why they left such an impression on me is I did see them both at a very young age, and um, Temple of Doom. Um, I, there, there are just some things that, you know, as a young person, when you see something, you just, you can't, you can't unsee it. And I remember watching that film. And one of the things that, you know, stuck with me as a filmmaker up until now, and what that film did was, you know, I knew what Indiana Jones was. I knew that, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, I knew what, even at four or five years old, like I knew like the adventure film it had, you know, you, you go through it and, you know, it's the guy, he's in the jungle and then he fights the Nazis and, you know, they shoot at each other and he gets the, the, the artifacts. And this one was different though. And what was so unique about this one was how you get the Indiana Jones movie and then you get something else at about the midway point. You get the thuggy cult. And uh, it takes us in a completely different direction. And, you know, I, I'll never forget, you know, seeing the, the heart being ripped out of that guy and him being, you know, engulfed in flames and being horrified. Um, and really, really feeling um, that Indiana Jones was in danger, you know, uh, and that, you know, this was the end for him. I don't know, like that was, it left a real strong impression on me. Um, uh, so, uh, bravo Spielberg for making you know the, the 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 very unintentional horror film that that it ended up being. Uh, well, I, but but he, you know they even said it was kind of like Indiana Jones goes to hell, you know. Um, yes. but yeah. So and I mean obviously like and honestly you know doing Wrong Turn. What was really interesting about Wrong Turn was when I saw that I watched Temple of Doom over and over again while I was making that movie. Like the two movies that I would watch 
while making while um while doing um wrong turn was i'd watch green room and i'd watch uh temple doom and those are the movies that i had the actors watch as well because that was sort of the vibe um but temple doom has been a huge inspiration um just in terms of how it's broken up and you know, how you start in china and then you go to india and you just you, you really if you step away from it you really don't know where it's going and it keeps that hidden from you love yeah. that i was about to say that's crazy that you you talk how much Temple of Doom and it switches halfway through and everything. I'm thinking in my head, I was like, no wonder, no wonder you got so excited when you got that wrong turn script. I mean, it all just comes full circle. You, your, yeah. your dad shows you this movie when you're a little too young to see it. And however many years later, you're, you're seeing a movie that flips the script and has some uh, similar vibes, if you will, at certain points of the movie, as far as um, groups of people doing things and yeah, crazy absolutely crazy masks and headdresses it's yes it's hilarious. so true yeah um and then the other one that you know I, th I think might land is a little bit more obvious is something like um uh monster squad was just a huge um that was a big one growing up uh, i remember it was another movie that was maybe shown to me when i was a little too young but uh it was like the movie where i was like oh my god like there can be movies with kids and they can really be in danger and as a kid, that was terrifying. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and these monsters that I was, because I had watched all those movies. I had seen Dracula. I'd seen Frankenstein. I'd seen Creature from the Black Lagoon. I'd seen The Mummy. And so I was familiar with all these characters, uh, these monsters, but not in the way that this movie did them. In this movie, they were actually mean. <laughs> and they were terrifying. They were, they, were, they were what I think I wanted them to be in those other movies, even as a young kid, like I wanted, you, you always want the, as much as it scares you, you want the monster to be a monster. Always. And in this movie, it, it does that thing where it, it pushes that boundary just a little bit too far where, is it a kid's movie? Uh, not really, but it is. And I remember as a kid watching that, feeling that and being like, wow, like this is special. Um, and I know, and I know there's a huge fan base for that movie. I, I also know that there's a huge um, battle between Goonies fans and Monster Squad fans. Um, you know, there's, you know, are you Team Goonies or are you Team Monster Squad? And man, do I have the do I have the arguments with people about that? <laughs> it's funny you mention that. Uh, we just had um, Andre on, you know, a couple months ago. No way. Uh, I should get I should get him to come on right now. I should text him. <laughs> Uh, but no, we, we did a whole thing. Um, and I was at the Fantastic Fest where they actually had the boxing match between Monster Squad and Goonies. And, uh, and then, you know, like Monster Squad, you know, you're in the goddamn club, you know, aren't you? And, you know, there's a Holocaust survivor in Monster yeah. Squad. There's virgins. There's, yep. you know, th there's a lot going on than, you know, just Give Goonies, me I think. the amulet, you bitch. Like, that's, that's, you, you can't do that now <laughs> right right no we'll 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 talk about that uh later but yeah no we're like the monster squad stuff um but yeah no i'm glad you mentioned monster squad it's a great movie it still has a big fan base it's still getting a lot of play and there is actually a documentary that andre made um called um yeah 
Wolfman's Got Nards and it's about the legacy and the fans and, you know, going through that. It's pretty cool. And I think, you know, with Wrong Turn, there's an element to that because there's still a big fan base to Wrong Turn. Um, and I just think that with this, with your film, uh, there's just, the, you brought a lot more to say to it than what was done in the previous six. Um you know, besides, you know, the, the, you know, the cannibal family, which I love the joke in the new one about, uh, well, but, uh, I, there's just, there's so much more to the plate here and it's just, oh, I can't wait to see where it goes. Yeah. You know, the, um, and I think that's, that's what was really fun about, you know, reading that script and seeing Alan wanting to do something that, that is, that was so different and that had some interesting themes in it. Um, you know, this, uh, you know, this idea of, of, of three different factions of people, you know, that, you know, fall into this dangerous trap of, of, of stereotyping each other, thinking they know uh, who, who, who each, each other, you know, who, who they are and, and they're wrong. Um, and it gets everybody into trouble, you know, um, you know, and, and I think that that's, that was such a unique, you know, play uh, on the story. And, and, you know, that's ultimately that's, that's, that's our meat uh of our tale here and you know you know walking away from a movie like this and, and thinking about that and thinking about your own self and, and how you know how you view other people and and how you're able to just go online and lambast anybody you want to lambast without you know without any consequence anymore um you know i think that really speaks you know this movie speaks to that and 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 that we've lost that connection um with people and we're so quick to judge and mm -hmm. i think that's, that's dangerous well, Mike, thank you so much for joining my bloody podcast. The spotlight is on you now. Um, the in, in the vein of your best Charles Bronson impression, can you please tell everybody where to find Wrong Turn at? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> Gotta check out Wrong Turn. It's in theaters now. Hugh Drivens available VOD. Yay! <laughs> I don't know if that was Charles Bronson. This was Charles Bronson, like, you know, end of Death Wish when he's like, you know, but right. I, I, I recognize him. I recognize him. That was good. That was good. Well, thank you so much. You guys, absolutely. No, it was a pleasure being on the show, you guys. Holy crap. It's awesome. Thanks a lot, man.